The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to a new year, and to a new season of the Folklore Podcast. I hope that you're still enjoying the podcast, and that you find it entertaining and interesting in equal measure. It can be quite isolating here on this side of the microphone, so please don't be shy in emailing in, or posting in the Folklore Podcast Facebook group, or on Twitter. It is really useful to know what you think of the episodes. I'm also launching a new project for 2019, the Folklore Podcast Big Record. Some of you have already responded to the social media posts about this, and I'll be sending more details out soon for you. But anyone can join in at any time by emailing thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com. Field research is not carried out anywhere near as extensively as it was 50 or so years ago for the purpose of collecting folklore beliefs and traditions. The focus lately, where it still exists, is on academic research and publishing, at the expense of going out into the field. We are at risk of losing a lot of our old beliefs and memories because of this, and this is not something that I want to see happen. We collectively have the means to be able to at least do a bit to redress this. The Folklore Podcast Big Record aims to coordinate people around the world to use a common set of agreed practices to interview and record some of the older generations of our communities about the customs, superstitions and beliefs. This audio would then be properly archived using record office and similar specifications to be available for future generations as a record. The project needs people to collect the audio, interviewing people in their communities, and would also benefit from transcribers for the collected audio too. If you are interested in helping to preserve our beliefs in this way, please email the podcast and I will get back to you with more details. Thank you. But now... On with this episode of the podcast. New Year traditions haven't been covered yet on the show, 
and so I thought it was about time we gave them some attention, starting here in the UK and then moving on to look at other countries around the world. In Latinized naming conventions, the month of January gets its name from the Roman god, Janus, the god of beginnings. Janus had two faces and looked both to the past and to the future, which is in keeping with the start of a new year. Romans would exchange gifts on the first day of Janus's month to honour the god. But January is only significant as a heralding of the new year for cultures who operate a solar calendar. Remember that it was only in 46 BC that Julius Caesar changed to the 365-day calendar, and in order to put the seasons into line with the sun, the previous year had had to run for 445 days. As we shall see later on, at different periods in history and in different countries, the beginning of the year is celebrated at very different times. New Year, of course, has always been observed on a variety of dates in European culture, as the folklorist Christina Hole pointed out in an article written back in 1960. These range from All Saints to Ladies' Day, and it wasn't until the 18th century that, in Britain at least, January the 1st became a significant date. It was Pope Gregory the 13th who amended the previous Julian calendar and at the same time moved the celebration of the new year to January the 1st, a date which in fact has no significance at all in terms of the moon cycles or the stars. Ideas of New Year customs stem from the turning of the year at winter solstice in many ways. The looking ahead to a time of renewal and rebirth, and the need for good fortune and warmth to bring about good crops. These elements of luck and warmth are found represented very strongly in the well-established tradition of first footing. First footing is a well-known tradition from Scotland down to Cornwall, observed to try and bring good fortune to the home. Precise methods of carrying this out varied from area to area. Here is the old style of observing the practice from the moors around my area of the country. All of the lights in the house would be put out, and the doors and windows opened on the last stroke of midnight, as the new year came into being. The first person to visit the house would then be an indicator of the times to come. If they were dark, then they would bring good fortune. A light-haired or pale-skinned visitor would bring bad luck. It's not known for certain why darker people were considered to be more lucky, but it may possibly date back to the times of the Viking invasions, where the majority of the people posing a threat would have been more blonde or red-headed. If you've heard the recent episode of the podcast on the folklore surrounding redheads, then you will recall plenty of examples of bad luck ascribed to them. If the visitor brought a gift, then the nature of this might also have indicated the year to come. A lump of coal was common, signifying warmth. A coin would be a natural choice. It was usual, of course, for the first visitor to be pre-arranged rather than actually tempting fate. 
Sometimes the first footer would also be responsible for taking a pan of ashes from the fire out of the house with them. This was symbolic of the departing of the old year. In other places, this would be the responsibility of the head of the house. A similar old custom was to open the back door of the house at midnight to let the old year out, and then open the front door to welcome the new year in. Tracy and I, in fact, observe this custom every year in our own house. First footing was a very strong tradition in Scotland, where it was part of the celebration of Hogmanay, the Scottish term for the New Year celebrations. These are very strong to this day in Scotland, where an extra public holiday is observed after New Year's Eve instead of the normal one. The origins of the term Hogmanay are uncertain. It is more likely to come from the French Hoginane, meaning Gala Day, and is thought to have become more commonly used after Mary Queen of Scots returned to her homeland in the 1560s. Other suggestions are that it derives from the Anglo-Saxon Haleg Monath, or Holy Month, or from the Scandinavian Hogo Not, Yule. One of the most well-known exports to come from the Scottish New Year celebrations is the singing of the song Old Lang Syne. The words were first recorded in writing in the 1700s, and it is the poet Robert Burns who is most often associated with the stanzas through his transcription. The title comes from Old Scottish dialect and means times gone by. Here is an example of it in its sung form, by Scots singer Kenneth McKellar.
It is a well-known image around the English-speaking world to see people linking arms at midnight on New Year's Eve to sing the first verse of this song, which is as much as most people know, especially after an evening in the pub. To be accurate, however, linking arms should not actually take place until the verse beginning, And there's a hand, my trusty friend. The cup of kindness is a shared drink symbolic of friendship. Burns was not the only poet to write on New Year. Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote the verse Ring out the old, ring in the new, ring happy bells across the snow. The year is going, let him go, ring out the false, ring in the true. There was an old belief, of course, that the devil and his demons hated loud noise, and so, as well as a mark of celebration, church bells have the added bonus of keeping him at bay. Another old superstition says that whatever one is doing when the church bells are ringing in the new year is what you will spend much of the rest of the following year doing. It is therefore not a good idea to go to bed before midnight, and indeed even the elderly would traditionally stay up past midnight on this date. Nor would people tempt fate by wearing black on New Year's Eve, as this would be said to bring death in the new year. If women were already in mourning, they would add a white apron to their mourning clothes on this date to avoid more death in the following year. There are also some examples of weather law associated with New Year. The direction of the wind during the sunrise of January the 1st was said to foretell the coming year. If the wind was from the south, then good weather was to come, but from the north suggested the weather would be bad for the coming year. From the east predicted natural disasters, and from the west abundant milk and fish in the year ahead. No wind at all was a good sign of joy and prosperity. In some places the day on which New Year fell was also important. A traditional belief recorded by Sarah Hewitt in 1900 stated that If New Year's Day happen on a Saturday, the winter will be mean, the summer hot, the harvest late, garden stuff good and cheap, honey, flax and hemp abundant. Ceremonies involving fire are very common in the winter months. The most well-known of these are probably those associated with Guy Fawkes on November the 5th, but there are many other winter bonfire traditions, and plenty of these tie in with New Year celebrations. Scotland, as we have already heard, does much around the New Year time, and so there are various examples from here and the northern parts of England. Examples recorded include at Bigger and at Wick, where huge fires were burnt around which people danced as the year ended. Stonehaven, which had a fireball procession, where balls of rope coated in tallow were set alight and swung on long cords. And Comrie, where the procession involved geysers carrying torches. At Allendale, in the county of Northumberland, the annual Tarbal celebrations take place each New Year's Eve. Tarbal is a contraction of tar barrel, and the festival sees 45 local men, the traditional geysers, carrying whiskey barrels filled with hot tar, which is set alight on their heads in a spectacular and very dangerous procession through the town. 
To be a participant, men must have been born in the area, and many of them have inherited their position in the festival from previous generations of geysers. Their costumes are augmented with their faces having been blackened with soot, as is common in geysing traditions. Participation in the Tarbal procession is seen as a feat of strength and daring, and only men can carry the barrels, with one notable exception. In the mid-1950s, one local woman, Vesta Pert, was given permission to take part. This was in gratitude for the number of costumes that she had created for the geysers. Many of these are still worn in the modern processions. The night itself takes the form of a street party until the start of the hour before midnight, at which point the geysers are gathered together to prepare. At 11.30pm, the barrels are lit, and each participant places the barrel on their head and takes their place behind the band. They process to the town centre, where all of the barrels are used to set alight the main bonfire at midnight, to see in the new year, accompanied by shouts of Be damned to he who throws last. A similar tradition to this takes place at Ottery St Mary in Devon every November and there are other similarities with the famous Upheliar festival in Shetland at the end of January each year, although this involves torches rather than barrels. A ceremony called Burning the Bush used to be performed early on New Year's morning in the county of Herefordshire until the 1860s or 1870s. In modern times it is still remembered as part of the wassail celebrations which take place in early January but a good record of the original was preserved by folklorist Christina Hole. She notes that the bush was comprised of hawthorn and mistletoe, which had hung in a farmhouse kitchen during the year as a token of protection. On New Year's Day it would be removed and taken to the first wheat field to have been sown, where it would be burnt on a fire comprised of straw and furs. While the bush was burning, a new one would be made and its ends would be singed in the fire. In the partly remembered and simplified modern version, the bush hangs in the pub during the year and is replaced each year when the new ceremony takes place. While the bush in the original custom was alight, it would be carried across the ridges of the field at a running pace. In some local variations it was straw from the fire rather than the bush itself which was used for this. If the flames which fell from the bush while it was being carried went out before the bearer had reached the twelfth ridge, then this did not bode well for the forthcoming harvest that year. As with many of these customs, the ceremony would end with cider and cake and plenty of singing. There are differing ideas as to the symbolism of the burning the bush custom. Some said that the bush represented the crown of thorns and that carrying it across the field would drive the devil from the land. There are various pieces of country law relating to the devil and fields, such as leaving one corner of a field unploughed for the devil so as to protect the rest of the crop. Another suggestion is that burning the bush acted as a preventative measure against the wheat crop disease of smut. In any case, it is certain that the custom was an act of fertility for the crop, as the belief was widespread that if burning the bush did not take place, then the crops would fail. 
In some places, the giving of gifts is important at New Year, as it was with the Romans in their honouring of Janus. In Wales, this used to take the form of Kalanig. In the Welsh language, this means New Year gift, although the literal translation is more accurately first of the month. The word comes from Latin calens, from where we also get our word calendar. The calanig itself is an apple or orange, supported on three twig legs, which are stuck into the bottom. The fruit is then stuck with cloves, dried fruit and evergreens, a little bit like a Christingle orange. Children would house-visit door-to-door at New Year carrying a calanig. At each house they would sing short verses, and would then be rewarded with a coin or other small gift. The fruit is a traditional symbol of good luck in Wales, and the calanig would often be placed on the windowsill of a house for this purpose. Unfortunately, this custom is not observed very much these days, and where it is, the fruit tends to be omitted with children simply reciting some verses and being rewarded with a coin. One example of a verse in the English translation is I left my house today with my bag and my stick, and here is my message to you. Fill my bag with bread and cheese. Let's hear some children singing another version in the original Welsh language. The Naum Dominiani, Bluidina with I he Bluidina with I he Akibaupsidanati, the Naum Dominiani, Bluidina with I he. As with other important times of the year, there are a number of old superstitions which relate to New Year. Many people, especially children, still observe the tradition of saying white rabbits, white rabbits, white rabbits on the first of the month as their first spoken words. In Yorkshire, this is extended at New Year. Some people will say black rabbits, black rabbits, black rabbits in the last few seconds of the old year, leading into the white rabbits phrase in the first few seconds of the new. Other old beliefs include the thought that kissing at midnight would ensure that the coming year would retain affections and warmth, dancing in the open on New Year's Day would bring good luck, and that full cupboards and full purses at New Year would lead to prosperity in the coming 12 months. Food is important at Christmas time, of course. If you are a supporter of the podcast on Patreon, You might have heard the bonus episode a while back on Christmas food traditions. In some cultures and countries, food is equally as important in New Year celebrations too. The Persians, for example, would give the gift of eggs at New Year, a sign, of course, of fertility. Elsewhere, good luck is connected to pork and black-eyed peas in the southern United States, rice in India and Pakistan, and in Holland, a fritter called Oli Bolen. Any circular cake, such as a doughnut, symbolises coming full circle, and also suggests good fortune. A particularly messy custom in houses in Switzerland is to drop whipped cream on the floor and allow it to stay there. The richness of the cream is connected with prosperity. 
In other countries who may have operated in different ways in terms of the calendar, New Year does not fall in January. In ancient Egypt, it was a movable feast. Much of the old Egyptian cultural practice was connected with the importance of the River Nile, and the peoples of ancient Egypt would celebrate New Year in relation to the annual flooding of the river. The Roman writer Censorinus recorded that the timing of the New Year was based on the sighting of Sirius, the dog star. The New Year was declared when the star became visible in the sky after an absence of 70 days, known as the Heliacal Rising and usually towards the middle of July. In Egypt, this was called Wepet Renpet, or the opening of the year, and various rituals and feasts were celebrated to mark the period of rebirth of the land. This time was also connected to the stories of the sun god Ra, saving the human race from the war goddess Sekhmet, who had planned to kill them off using copious drinking. Ironically, copious drinking is often connected with marking the new year now. For the many people in Egypt who follow Islam, the new year marks the birth of the prophet Muhammad. New year in Egypt begins after the sighting of the crescent moon at the Muhammad Ali Mosque in Cairo. The sighting is proclaimed and then message passed through the assembled crowds, who will then disperse to their families. At one time, the custom was strong that the heads of families would visit other houses in the area to bring New Year greetings. There are similarities here with the Western first footing traditions which I've already mentioned. In more recent times, people tend to visit only their own family and friends at this time. Sweets are also made for the children in the shape of dolls. These tend to be fairly heavily gendered offerings with girls receiving a sweet doll in a nice dress, while sweets for boys look more like a boy on a horse. This is not unusual in this culture, but may resonate differently to others. The movements of the bodies in the heavens are responsible for informing the coming of the new year in other cultures too. In Korea, for example, celebrations coincide with the second new moon after the winter solstice, taking place at sunset on that day. Tibetans also celebrate at the new moon. This would normally fall in either late January or early February. In China, the lunar calendar also drives the time of the New Year festivities. Similarly to Tibet, these take place in either January or February, at a point between January 21st and February 20th, with the date being variable. China arguably has the most extensive celebratory customs, running as they do for a period of 15 days, from the first new moon of the lunar year until the first full moon. The first day of this period is Chinese New Year, and the last, the Lantern Festival. Many New Year festivals mark the start of the looking forward to spring, having their roots in the importance of the land and the turning of the seasons, and Chinese New Year is no exception. The festival is intrinsically linked to agriculture. The beginning of the lunar year in China marks the coming of spring, and so thoughts at this time turn very definitely to the need for good fortune in the coming months. We find many parallels at the start of the Chinese New Year with the Western customs already discussed. The paying off of old debts should have taken place in order to start the year afresh, which we see in many other countries. 
The windows and doors of the home will be opened to let out the old year and bring in the new one, as in other places. Additionally, the Chinese will let off firecrackers at this time, mirroring the need to create noise to drive away spirits which we find in traditions such as wassailing, as well as inspiring the modern New Year firework celebrations. Stories are very important in Chinese customs. We've heard them before in episodes such as Spindle, Shuttle and Needle, where we looked at the Weaver Goddess and in folklore surrounding the Eclipse. The firecrackers at Chinese New Year relate to the traditional story of Nian, which is also the tale behind the lion dances which are synonymous with this time of year as well. The fearsome beast Nian was said to attack Chinese villages at the time of the New Year. Nian resembled a bull, but with the head of a lion, and the impressive costumes associated with the lion dances, which some referred to as Chinese dragons, are representative of him. For all of his grotesque and frightening appearance, Nian was frightened of anything red in colour, especially fire, and also of loud noises. The firecrackers thrown at New Year are, of course, meant to drive him away and keep the villages safe. This story also explains why so many of the costumes in the Chinese processions are red, and why so many of the participants bang drums or have cymbals. As I said, the Chinese festivities are far more extensive than just one or two days. In cultures outside of China, where Chinese settlers work, this is a time equitable to the importance of Christmas celebrations. Chinese restaurants and other businesses will usually be closed for the period of Chinese New Year, in the way that most Western businesses close over the Christmas period. In China itself, employees are given three days off for Chinese New Year. The culmination of the Chinese New Year festival is the Lantern, or Spring Lantern Festival, Huan Xiao in Chinese, allowing for my inevitably poor pronunciation. The Chinese New Year is a time of family celebration, and the Lantern Festival, which has its origins some 2,000 years ago, is symbolic of reunion. It's a social time, but also one which has connotations of freedom associated with it. In ancient China, women were not usually permitted to leave the house, with the exception of the last night of the New Year period. The fact that this gave them the opportunity to meet a variety of men has led some to suggest that the Lantern Festival should be representative of Valentine's Day instead of the actual festival of Qixi, which has been discussed on a previous episode of the podcast. The origins of the festival probably stem from two separate events. Back in the Western Han Dynasty, the Emperor Wu had declared the date of January the 15th a time of ritual worship for Tai Yi. After the reign of Emperor Wu, there was a time of great struggle for power before Emperor Wen took the throne and brought peace to the country. To mark this, Wen made the 15th a public holiday throughout the land, and at this time, every family would light lanterns. These events were probably conflated with some from the Eastern Han Dynasty to become the modern Lantern Festival. The emperor of that dynasty... Ming was a Buddhist. When he learned that monks lit candles on January the 15th in devotion of the Buddha, he issued orders that the temples should do the same, and that people at home should hang lanterns. Celebrations at this time would typically last for a whole month. 
Two other old festivals are sometimes combined with the Lantern Festival. In some areas of southwest China, the Torch Festival is still observed, where villagers dance in the fields with flaming torches from dusk until dawn, in the hope of a good harvest. Elsewhere, some of the Miao peoples celebrate the rather wonderful vegetable-stealing festival. Groups of girls head out to steal cabbages from the fields. These must come from the crops of a stranger and not a friend or a family member. The cabbages retrieved are all combined to produce a large communal feast. Tradition dictates that the person who eats the most food at the meal, providing that they are single, will be the first to marry in the year ahead. Bulgaria is another country rich in folklore and tradition, and here we see more parallels with New Year customs that we have already explored. Food is important throughout the Bulgarian Christmas and New Year, which is a ritualistic time that marks the transition from dark to light in a similar way to most New Year traditions of removing the old and bringing in the new. The meals on the important dates during this period such as St Ignatius's Day and Christmas Eve, have been theorified. That is, incense has been burned during the meal. The New Year's Eve feast is the last one at which this is done. Food at this table is very similar to the other meals, only it must include pork, whereas meat has previously not been included over this period. The more food included in this meal, the more plentiful will be the year ahead. New Year's Day, January the 1st, is St Basil's Day, and this is traditionally a time for the telling of fortunes in Bulgaria. Now we've seen many other examples of divination falling on significant calendar events. One of the traditional rituals in Bulgarian lore, which is performed on this date, is Lajuvain, the outcome of which is to tell girls to whom, if anyone, they would get married in the coming 12 months rings would be tied to small posies and dropped into water overnight. On the morning of St Basil's Day, they would be taken out again, with different incantations giving different meanings about the trade of the potential husband. The most well-known of the Bulgarian New Year rituals is probably servicane. This uses intertwined twigs, which symbolise health and happiness, called servachka. These would be decorated with coloured threads, dried and other fruit. Boys aged between 4 and 14, known as servicari, visit houses on New Year's night, as is so common in many other New Year traditions. They will tap the householders on the back with their servachkas, and in return they will be given money, fruit or other small gifts. The idea behind the custom as with other house visits, is to bring good fortune for the year ahead. There are many other New Year traditions around the world. Some have parallels with those we've already heard about, such as in Japan, where houses are cleaned from top to bottom in preparation for New Year's Eve, as part of the ritual idea of taking out the old rubbish, and a fresh start for the next 12 months. Others are less common. In Ireland, Evil spirits may be kept at bay by banging bread against the walls. In Chile, there is a tradition of sleeping next to family graves on New Year's Eve. And in Ecuador, scarecrows are burnt at the end of the old year. 
These are just a few examples of the many and varied customs and traditions celebrated as the old year ends and the new one begins. If you have your own family or regional New Year traditions that you observe, it would be great to hear about them. Do feel free to email them in or put them in the Folklore Podcast Facebook group. But even better, to lead into the Folklore Collecting Project of 2019, why not record your traditions as an audio file and send them in to be archived for the future? This would be a great and really easy way to contribute to the recording of folklore for generations to come. Email any recordings you make about your folklore remembrances or knowledge on any subject to the folklore podcast at gmail.com and I'll get back to you. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.